I'm Nala Ayed, host of Ideas. In this age of clickbait and online shouting, Ideas is a meeting ground for people who want to deepen their understanding of the world. Join me as we crack open a concept to see how it plays out over place and time and how it matters today. From the rise of authoritarianism to the history of cult movies, no idea is off limits. Ideas is on the CBC Listen app or wherever you find your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. I'm Eleanor Wachtel, and this is Writers and Company from the Archives. Today, from Ireland, Anne Enright, winner of the 2008 Man Booker Prize for her strange and daring novel about family and loss, The Gathering. Now she has a new book, The Wren, The Wren. I've been following the work of Anne Enright for about 30 years, ever since her first collection of short stories with the unlikely name The Portable Virgin. I was preparing a series on Irish writing, and Enright, young and quirky, was just coming onto the scene. Even then, she said she wanted to freshen up the Irish literary tradition through the idiosyncratic use of language, which she does in spades. Here's how the New York Times described her. Reckless intelligence, savage humor, slow revelation, no consolation. Anne Enright's fiction is jet dark, but how it glitters. Enright was born in Dublin in 1962. She studied philosophy at Trinity College Dublin, English at the Pearson College of the Pacific on Vancouver Island, and then she completed the prestigious MFA in creative writing at the University of East Anglia. For a while, she worked as a TV producer for RTE, the Irish public broadcaster, and she wrote short stories that became The Portable Virgin. There are traces of her television experience in the cinematic cutting and interweaving of her novels. For instance, The Wig My Father Wore and What Are You Like? Her Booker winner, The Gathering, was her fourth, mixing past and present, childhood and maturity, love and loss, inflected with sardonic humor. The story revolves around the tragic death of a young man inside a large family. Enright subsequently produced three more novels and two collections of stories. Now she has a new title, The Wren, The Wren, another intergenerational book, another uniquely unhappy family, this time centered on the love between a mother and daughter. I talked to Anne Enright in 2008 from the RTE Studios in Dublin. Just a warning, there's some discussion about suicide during our conversation. Large Catholic families seem to be on their way out in modern Ireland. Why did you want to take such a close look at the emotional mechanics of of this fictional family in your novel, The Gathering? Well, you know, a friend of mine once said that Ireland was like a a giant orphanage. You know, they just left us alone. They went away and there's nobody in charge anymore. And that image stuck with me. It's obviously a post-colonial image, but I I like the idea of this chaos and and of a free-range sort of family in which people found their own level. Um, the uh, Hegartys are not an abused family. They, nobody has the time uh, to abuse them per- particularly. You know, they're the kind of family that had their dinner on the stairs because there wasn't enough room around the table. And these families did exist and exist among my peers and contemporaries in Ireland still. Nobody's having them anymore, thank God. Because here the mother had 12 children and seven miscarriages. Yeah. That's they a just lot. kept going. <laughs> it is a lot. It's not as many as, um, as women I have met. I was up in Belfast uh, with a reading group and a woman said she was called Dolores. And I love... Uh, people's names and I said why are you called Dolores because Dolores means sorrows and she said I was the last of 21 she told me what had happened to all her brothers you know she was a, a, a Belfast Catholic family and what had happened to her brothers and sisters who was dead who's alive who was in the country who had been shot and it was amazing and I thought that this is one of the places where stories begin and uh, family is is where we first begin to compare ourselves to other human beings and compare our stories. And perhaps that's how we define ourselves for most of our lives, maybe. There is the feeling of the large family culture in in the gathering. What is unique or peculiar to large families? 
I think large families are probably the same as small families, except you just multiply it by three or four. I suppose large families were just sort of benignly or otherwise neglected and left to grow um, as they could. And so there is a kind of survival instinct or sense of pride, a sense of the group about them. So they are they are linked um, to um, a large extent. The book is about how we are connected to other human beings, whether we want to be or not. Veronica spends a lot of time in an attempt not to be connected, trying to get away from family. Certainly the the Hegartys don't look for pity or love. I mean, and, and this seemed an honorable way to live, uh, says one character. Yeah, I mean, they don't have their parents asking them how they feel and they don't have anyone inquiring. So, I mean, Veronica says it's quite a private way to exist, that no one gets into your stuff. It's a very unsentimental way to live. It's very unrationalised or under-rationalised. But I don't know if you can rationalise families. I don't know how much talk helps finally with families or rationalisation. So she says, yeah, it's an honourable way to live. And I suppose they're proud and they have a code. The narrator of The Gathering, Veronica, is approaching middle age and she didn't seem to have a, a particularly loving relationship with her mother. And it's clear that she's she's frustrated with her, especially as, as her mother gets older and, and even vaguer. What What's that about? She's so cross with her mother. I mean, she's so absolutely cross with her. And you kind of feel more sympathy for the mother often than you do for Veronica railing against the fact that her mother is barely there. This woman has been knocked apart by pregnancies and she can't tell when she opens the door who or who she's talking to or which child it might be. In fact, she just is nominative amnesia like lots of us. She just can't put a name on on, on the the child in question. But Veronica is in a rage because of this absence. I mean, mothers are so important in Irish literature that that they're often dead, you know. What do you, way what do you mean? <laughs> well, they're un, unwritable, you know. I mean, John McGarren's mother died in, early in his childhood and in his subsequent books, the mother's always dead. And that's part of the power of, of these novels amongst women. And um, But I thought the mother as martyr was a, an Irish stereotype. Yeah, not in fiction, you know, I'm just trying to think many of the Irish stereotypes that you think of, like large families, misery, uh, misery, memoirs, uh, martyred mothers or whatever, are, are come from uh, memoirs rather than fiction or come from diaspora fiction, Ireland as a remembered place by emigrants. So certainly people in Ireland are very cross with me um, for, for, for yet again promulgating this this idea of Ireland as an overbred um, mess of a place, you know. Could you read a little from near the beginning of the gathering when Veronica's reflecting on her mother? Yep. My mother had 12 children, and as she told me, one hard day, seven miscarriages. The holes in her head are not her fault. Even so, I've never forgiven her any of it. I just can't. I've not forgiven her for my sister Margaret, who we called Midge until she died, aged 42, from pancreatic cancer. I do not forgive her my beautiful, drifting sister Bea. I do not forgive her my first brother Ernest, who was a priest in Peru until he became a lapsed priest in Peru. I do not forgive her my brother Stevie, who is a little angel in heaven. I do not forgive her the whole tedious litany of Midge, Bea, Ernest, Stevie, Ita, Mossy, Liam, Veronica, Kitty, Alice and the twins, Ivor and Jem. Such epic names she gave us. None of your Jimmy, Joe or Mick. The miscarriages might have got numbers like 1962 or 1964, though perhaps she named them too in her heart. Serena, Afric, Moog. I don't forgive her those dead children either. The way she didn't even keep a notebook so you could tell who had what, when and which jabs. Am I the only woman in Ireland still at risk from poliomyelitis? No one knows. 
I don't forgive the endless hand-me-downs and few toys and Midge walloping us because my mother was too gentle or busy or absent or pregnant to bother. My sweetheart mother. My ageless girl. No, when it comes down to it, I do not forgive her the sex, the stupidity of so much humping, open and blind. Consequences, Mammy. Consequences. And Enright reading from her novel, The Gathering. Why is, most people don't even want to think too long about their parents' sex lives. What is it that Veronica's resents so much? I mean, she and, and, her, and her brother Liam, they don't buy the poor Mammy thing. Why is Veronica so hardened to her? Well, she shouldn't be so hardened to her, I think. I think the reader is allowed to judge Veronica for be, for her lack of of charity. And uh, although, uh, how could she? Um, children are always children they, uh, and, and, and always blame their parents and always will, uh, no matter what age they are. I don't know what age you, you get when, when, it's, when all that stops. And people don't think or dwell on their parents' sex lives. It is the primal uh, secret. It's the first taboo. And this sense of taboo and of incest also runs in an underground sort of way through the book. The book is about revelation. It's about secrets, um, as many books are, as many tragic books are. They're about tragic revelations. So when you wonder what is the monstrous thing that will be revealed, what is the awfulness that is at the centre of these dark narratives, you're reaching back into a very uh, primary part of the unconscious. And so, yes, the primal secret will do as well as any other to describe that. Because in a sense, all these children are evidence of their having had sex, which they'd rather not even think about. (laughs) Yeah, I have a theory. I always have a theory for a week or two. My current theory is that Ireland... Somebody asked me, a very English um, interviewer asked me, wasn't Ireland terribly sexually repressed? And I thought, well, not as much as you, actually, because Ireland was not sexually repressed. It may have been sexually oppressed, which is a different kind of thing. But the Catholic Church did nothing but talk about sex and bring it into people's minds on a permanent, semi-permanent basis. They were they were reared to think of nothing else, um, if only for the avoidance of it. And also because it was a, a largely a rural country, I mean, the, the mechanics of reproduction were, were, were not exactly a mystery to a large part of the population. So there was this imposed and very unsuccessfully imposed rule about, uh, or set of rules about chastity and marriage and uh, being good Catholics, basically. That never really worked. Veronica's own sex life is is rather fraught as well. I mean, sex is is rarely a smooth road. But what what's her ambivalence about? I have I have written very cheerfully about sex in the past, and so I felt that it was time that I could go over to the dark side for this one for this one book. Veronica has gone off sex completely for the duration of the book. There is one sort of uh, uh, incident with two in the book, incident between herself and her husband. Shortly after her brother dies, in fact, the night of the wake, her husband sort of tries to reclaim her by having sex. And it doesn't work, whatever it is. She's quite averse to the whole business. She hasn't been, I would say, averse to the whole business previously in her life. But the the, the death of her brother has has brought in all the things she hasn't thought about. She has been a professional uh, in her in the past. She's got a very nice house. She's rearing her daughters very perfectly. And she she lives an exemplary life. And the death of her brother brings all that, brings her house crashing down. And with that, the stain of sexual shame seems to spread throughout the whole book. I mean, th- th- this book is is regularly, I think, flung against the wall by people who just can't stand it, really, because of this sort of stained, na- the unsettling nature of it. It's not a cosy read and it's not about redemptive sex or sex as healing or redemption or even romance. It is, as I say, about the darker side. Thrown against the wall. You mean as in Dorothy Parker's famous, this book should not be tossed aside lightly. It should, it be, should thrown be thrown with great. a great force. Yes, <laughs> yes. I mean, some people just go, yuck. 
Sorry. I shouldn't laugh. <laughs> well, so you always have to take a certain pleasure in, in at least eliciting a strong reaction from the well, reader. Well, you know, you know you've written something. Uh, yes. Uh, and there's, if, if you have a hot reaction, whether pro or con, you know that you've, you've written something. I like that, Jess. There's... I mean, speaking of hot reactions, there's there's hate between Veronica and her husband as well as love. And you say you wanted to look at how desire and hatred are bound to each other. Yeah, well, that's more, you know, Veronica's, because the secret at the center of the novel is also a sexual secret, Veronica has gone off not just sex, but men, in ge- but male sexuality. And male sexuality becomes a mystery to her. She doesn't know what they the idea that a man can do damage to another human being and call that sex i think although not explicitly said in the book i wouldn't um state my theme so boldly but that is one of her concerns she hasn't just gone off sex it has to be said she has gone off men and she doesn't know what they want i suppose and finally she she associates or she she dissects the desire that her husband has for her as being bound up with hatred. Not her desires, but male desires. Because they hate what they desire? I don't. Yeah, well, she says to her husband a really mean line because he's not that bad a guy, actually. Um, but she says, your daughters will fall for men like you, men who hate them just because they want them. That's pretty tough. It is. It's rough. It's rough. Veronica is a character who's fallen apart, you know, so we're looking at the pieces and it is with great difficulty that they are pulled together towards the end of the book. But they are actually pulled together towards the end of the book. She does find a way through. She believes that she will be able to love her husband again. She believes that she'll be able to live her life in some way properly with a degree of what might be called authenticity. What she wants most is to to be in her life to possess it in that sort of way. And that's what she realises she hasn't had for years, that although she's done it all and she's succeeded and she, all her ambitions have been fulfilled, that she isn't living in some way an authentic life. And in right, in this family of 12 children, Veronica has a brother, Liam, who's 11 months older. And we learn early on uh, that he's drowned himself. He was 40. What kind of a man was Liam? I got a phone call when I was in the airport from a guy I knew 20 years ago who just read the book and he got my number and he had to talk to me about Liam because he knew Liam, basically. And um, Liam is the lost... A lot of families have them. Is the, 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 the guy who didn't come through, you know. He's the, the one... He's the lost sheep. But what this this old friend was saying, you didn't make him funny enough. These guys are really funny. Now, it's, it's quite true, you know, that uh, that Liam's uh, wit, I didn't write about how witty and subversive and uh, as well as annoying a character like him can be. Liam was, at the age of 16, she says he was a prince. It was just the world he couldn't handle. And uh, this is, for me both anecdotally and I, I have also observed it in, in, in people who have had um, uh, incidents of abuse in their childhood, which is part of the story of the gathering, that as long as they can be mad, they're fine. But if they have to be responsible, it all falls apart. And and, and Liam just couldn't take responsibility for anything. And he um, eventually started drinking and um, he uh, worked as a porter in the Royal Hampstead in a hospital in London and he just he was a messer you know he messed things up he he couldn't hold on to things but uh, as far as you can tell from the narrative he was obviously quite attractive to women who uh, you know (laughs) Veronica says he, he liked all those useless kind of women those translucent girls you know there was always a girl hanging on he was always horrible to her Veronica and Liam didn't have an easy relationship, but they were very, very close, almost like twins. What kept them so close? What did they share? Well, they were sh- they were very close in age. Um, they were also hived out. They were farmed out to their granny with their little sister Kitty when they were eight and nine years of age for me- reasons that were were still mysterious to Veronica when she grew up. 
and I have met these people too. I mean, I've met people in Ireland who were sent up the road to live with some old people <laughs> and they don't know why they were sent to live up the road with the old people. Whether the old people paid their parents money or whether they were there to keep the old people company as a charitable act or whether it was one less mouth to feed. Um, but anyway, that, that did happen. They were sent off to their granny's house in Broadstone in the centre of Dublin and that kept them close. They were, they were in it together. It's almost an incestuous relationship between the two of them, but I didn't really make that explicit. They're compadres, you know. They're complicit. They're in it together. Most people probably first learn about love or and maybe hate from their families. What did Veronica learn from her relationship with Liam? A lot of it couldn't, couldn't be spoken and wasn't realised by Veronica. The thing is... There are very good reasons why you don't love your siblings too much. We spend an awful lot of time avoiding loving our siblings. We spend a lot of time getting annoyed with them. We uh, spend a lot of time dreading Christmas, for example. There are strong taboos that prevent us from loving them as perhaps we might. And when Liam dies, because he's not there anymore, she can love him for the first time. And so that's part of the wave of emotion that crashes over in the book is the fact that she loved him. I mean, he was an alcoholic. By the time he died, he was a grey heap of a thing, she describes him. So that 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 is that's what she felt for him. She felt she denied what she felt for him until it was too late. And then she felt it for him too strongly. Because when they were in their early 20s, Veronica and Liam shared a squalid apartment in London and she reflects on how she, at that time of her, in her life, you know, could have gone any way, including really down. Uh, mm-hmm. And instead, she's this comfortably middle class woman with a husband, two daughters. What made that difference that she wasn't lost and her brother was? Yeah, I mean, she she decides to leave him. They're living in a squat, which is essentially a tenement in, in, in London. And partly because she's a girl. She says, I'm going to be a girl. I'm going to fall in love. She's not going to have arbitrary sex. She's going to fall in love. I'm going to do well in my exams the way girls do well in their exams. So and she clunks down the stairs with her trolley bag like an air hostess. So it is part of it's a function of her being female that she's not going to end up on the street as Liam might end up on the street because bag ladies are far fewer than than tramps. So it is partly her gender that's that that saves her. But also because she isn't damaged in the same way that Liam has been damaged. She has more resources. She's able to do things. She's competent. In fact, she's highly competent. And because of the muddle of her of her family life, she's very ambitious. The funny thing about Ireland is how socially fluid it all is or was. You know, the class is getting more striated and more sort of petrified even as we speak. But, you know, 20 years ago, uh, the middle, you couldn't really identify somebody as definitely middle class and you wouldn't know where they might end up. I mean, nobody had any money. Everybody in the country was pretty much poor. So you had education or not education. And then with the free education, it was all up for grabs. So if you look at the Hegartys, um, Veronica's nieces are actually a different class than she is. Uh, And you can see the, the family, the different families that come out of that family going down different lines. So... Veronica is completely, I mean, she's quite aspirationally middle class, but she lose the whole aspirational edge early enough and she'll settle down and be the thing. And the damage that, that Liam experienced um, goes back to, I mean, may we say what the dark secret is? Well, I suppose, you know, I mean... I mean, you've alluded to it and the, and the novel actually alludes to it indirectly kind of throughout it in terms of having a sexual source. We don't yeah, have there, to... there is no secret. There is no secret about what the secret in the book is. Yes, exactly. And um, the secret in the book is a sexual secret. It is the the fact that a neighbour of uh, or an acquaintance of their grandmother inter what is the phrase interferes with Liam sexually when he's eight. Veronica also thinks that that isn't the only person who who, who did that. She thinks that that uh, it probably happened again and differently, but in ways that she didn't uh, witness or have anything to do with. 
And she does see that as the source of his unhappiness and his whole unhappy life, including his, his death by suicide. It sets the seal on his unhappiness. It organizes his unhappiness in a way that can't be altered, in the way that our most people's ordinary unhappiness can shift, you know, is a more ambient sort of thing. But Veronica thinks of, of, of life in terms of roads and, and, and that a road will lead somewhere to a particular kind of death. Um, we don't know if somebody kills themselves, their family and extended uh, friendship and acquaintance spent the spent a considerable amount of time saying why, what happened, when did it start, what could we have done? And I am with um, Cordelia in this when Lear wakes up after the total apocalyptic, uh, you know, first three acts of King Lear. And he says, what did I do to cause all of this? And Cordelia says, no cause, no cause. However, I do think there are certain events in people's lives that have certain effects. And I think that part of the purpose of the novel, of this novel, is to get through the layers of the onion, as it were, and say, yes, yeah, there are things that matter. And this is one of them. Uh, certainly the, the whole story is, uh, is, is coached in uncertainty uh, mm-hmm. uh, and, and a kind of elusive truth. Sometimes Veronica says she doesn't know anything except story. Other times she says... I can get my hands on the truth. You know, there's that that ambiguity seems to permeate the whole story. Yeah, I mean, Veronica is an unreliable narrator in that she doesn't she doesn't know what happened most of the time. She's trying to piece it together herself. But I think the reader recognizes that unlike most unreliable narrators, she's honest. (laughs) she's, She's brutally honest. She's not unreliable in order to play a trick. She's not unreliable for fun. She's not in a position of power. She's as helpless to the story as any narrator can be, actually. There's a touching moment near near the end of the gathering where Veronica's six-year-old daughter says to her over the phone, I give you a word, and that word is love. Mm. And I read somewhere that your daughter said that to you. Uh, Yeah, no, my my, my daughter... Is a little like Emily in the book. And I stole this one thing from her life, which was she couldn't figure out. And I don't know if she couldn't figure out why I wasn't there. If she can, if she could hear me. This is when she was three or four. It was over the phone. Yeah. She said, I can hear you, but you're not here. And I said, yes, no, I'm not there. No. <laughs> and then she said, well, I, I give you a word and that word is love. This is how she decided to use the phone. So she was going at it from first principles. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And so I, I took that word. I took that word from her. Have you ever longed to escape reality or fantasized about stepping into someone else's shoes, even for just a little while? Hi, I'm Laura Mullen. And I'm Chris Tolley. We host CBC's Play Me, The immersive podcast that transforms theatre into addictive audio fiction. Join us for a new season and disappear into a world rich with drama, where every show delivers hypnotizing stories and unveils intriguing characters with secrets. Play me wherever you get your podcasts. And in right, much of The Gathering takes place in in what you might call old Ireland in the sense before the country's union with Europe, before the economic boom and modernization of the 1990s. You say that the novel is full of residues and ghosts. How are are they felt in Ireland today? I think they are felt. um, You know, there's always a tearing sound when you move (laughs) anywhere. And there is, there's this, there's the sound of ripping as Ireland moves ahead very fast, as the past gets left behind. And, you know, there are certain rituals that 10 years into the boom are exactly the same as they were before the boom started. Weddings, christenings, funerals. There are certain ideas about manners that haven't changed. Um, and much noise. I mean, there's a lot of noise about how much money we're making and how wonderful all that is. And um, 
I don't know how much has changed. I, I, I find that people are kind of scared by it all and the traffic doesn't work and um, and they're glad that their children will have work when they grow up and all the rest. But um, it's still the same place as it was. The, the, the newspapers in Ireland got a bit cross at me for being in the old Ireland and being miserable when obviously everything was bright and shiny and happy and new now. And so why could I not reflect that in some way? Ireland has always been a an idea that it sells to itself. It's always been a bit of a tourist poster, even for the people who live in it. And the tourist poster now says interconnectivity and money and telecommunications and whatever. But I, I don't believe any of the posters. Thank you very much. There's a song in the book called Hard Times, which is uh, an American song, but it's about sort of post-famine, post-dust um, bowl, I think. That, that's, it's Hard Times Come Again No More. And it was the most requested song every lunchtime on the, on the Lyric FM, which is the classical music station. Hard Times Come Again No More. It was the song of people who had come through and the ache of success, the loneliness of success and the sense of how did we manage that? You know... Uh, of loss, a great sense of loss for the old Ireland, or not the old Ireland, just loss of the people who hadn't made it, the generations of people who hadn't made it. And also looking around saying, oh, it's bright and shiny and glossy, but I don't feel that great. So it was a very mixed emotion, you know, that was reflected in this in this song. So when you say the rituals are the same, so there would be, I mean, in, in the gathering, there is a wake uh, with the body in the in, in the house and all that. That would still Yeah, happen? that's very socially specific. You know, it wouldn't happen in my own family home. Uh, it's probably a rural residue. Yes, people will be waked in their own family home still in the suburbs of Dublin. Um, but it very much depends on the family and the circumstances. In the gathering, Veronica's children, only two, like you, compared to her mother's 12, uh, they, they grow, her children grow up with very different lives. They, they don't have to fight over each clothes and underwear, and they get more individual attention from their parents. So, I mean, people's material lives are, have obviously improved. What is the downside? Is, is there a downside to the change? I don't think there necessarily is a, a, a I have no yearning for poor old Ireland. Thank you very much. I didn't believe in it when 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 it was there. The old uh, poets um, used to write dream poems where they would see Ireland as a beautiful woman or as a cow, um, very romantically described cow, um, <laughs> in these lovely Gaelic poems, and that tradition continues. But we don't we don't necessarily have a figure of beautiful Ireland anymore. It's no personal loss to me. Um, I thought it was all made up in the first place. And anyway, I'd like to look for a moment at, at what led to your becoming a writer. Uh, when you were in your 20s, you worked as a television producer at RTE, uh, Ireland's national broadcaster in Dublin. And it sounded both exciting and stressful. And, and it, this, the stress led to a kind of meltdown after you worked there for several years. What happened? Well, you know, I, I, I wrote an essay. Uh, um, I wrote a book called Making Babies about becoming a mother, which I thought was a very interesting thing to happen to anyone. And a part of that was writing about my relationship with my own mortality, which shifted uh, hugely once I had children. I realised that I couldn't die now. Thank you very much. Death was no longer an option. I had to stay around and nurture these uh, human beings. So I wrote a, an essay on mortality, which traced my own relationship with death. Uh, everybody's got one. It's their secret map. It's one of the ways of describing your life, how adolescents are enthralled to death, you know, if you're a goth or whatever, and how death becomes real or unreal. Um, um, and part of that essay was a description of a very serious, well, I don't know how serious it was, but a very real um, loss of function, I think, that's called a nervous breakdown that I had while working very hard in the media. Now, having a nervous breakdown when working very hard in the media is not exactly an uncommon occurrence. Um, but as but, I say, but, since but, I, but being suicidal, which was part of I that, don't think in, well in that in terms of the what you're, the map of death. Yeah, I don't know if being suicidal is is very unusual either. I don't know. I had been writing all along um, and 
and I write about death and have been writing about death all along as well. Um, or death is often a presence in, in my in my books. The wonderful thing I find is how strongly your relationship with death can change. And I wrote partly because I, I, I wrote actually partly out of a sense of social obligation because because people, when they're suicidal, can't see any other end, you know. And and I wanted to 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 put in the book, to put down on paper that there are lots of different ways for your life to go after an episode like that. That there are lots of different types and possibilities for happiness um, uh, and types of happiness and ways of describing happiness. And there are lots of unexpected ways of being uh, not suicidal. <laughs> we would call it content. How, how did you come to that? How did, how did you climb out of it? I don't know how you climb out of it. I mean, um, I, I reorganised for a while. I mean, I went on antidepressants. This is many years ago. I, I went on antidepressants for six months and they were, oh man, you know, they were, I don't know, like people who do drugs all the time probably know what I'm talking about. <laughs> but it was like being on another sort of level, a very floaty sort of level for about six months. But because it, uh, it removed my, my sorrow and anger at the time, I, I kind of reassessed, um, you know, I mean, I, I do have a problem with writers now who are so, who, who, who describe what, uh, what looks to me like depression, right? And they, and, and they say this is the existential, this is how we are, on the, this is the real truth about life. Whereas I just think that looks like a chemical condition to me. It doesn't look like an existential truth at all. And so as a writer, I, even in these in these darker books like The, the Gathering, there's a great uh, need, I feel, a great need to put in about, about life, about children, about reproduction, and even very small redemptions, but very tenuous but definite ideas that redemption is possible. As you were saying, you had been writing all along. When did you first know you wanted to be a writer? I, I, I think I was just culturally obliged to become a writer. I went to a school in Canada uh, called Lester B. Pearson College of the Pacific and had a rather amazing English teacher there to whom actually I've dedicated my next book of short stories. And I showed him my bad poetry and he was wonderfully ironic and encouraging at the same time and he understood exactly what the the, uh, the whole excruciating business of, of writing things down. But the... Um, the headman, the director, as we called him, of the school was introducing me to some sponsors one day uh, because it was they, they gave money to the school. And they said, and what are you going to do when you grow up? So these nice Canadians and the, and, and, and the director said, I think she's going to blow the world apart with her writing. And I was completely embarrassed because it was in the early 80s and the Irish were busy blowing the world apart in other ways. I mean, the, the, the idea of bombs and blowing up things. <laughs> I just didn't want that in the conversation somehow. Uh, and I thought it was a bit of a slip on his part. But it, it, it was the first time I had been described as a writer, as I, as I recall. Oh, so we can was, we can take credit here then. You oh certainly Canada can take pre- credit. I had two marvelous. Oh, no, really, actually, no, really. I had um, I had a great education there and uh, and and good fun. And and actually, to come from a convent school in in Ireland, which wasn't very conventy, but I mean, in my very first English class, to look at Keats, you know, and which was a sacred text as far as we're concerned. And, and, and Theo um, said uh, about, you know, the li- one of the lines, well, we all know what that means, he said. And suddenly I did. And I realised that, you know, it was about, it was about sex and death, actually, that poem, La Belle Dame Sans Merci. And I was outraged at, he, at, 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 at him lowering the tone because literature was supposed to be something very high. And, and I, I, I went up to him after class and said, you've ruined Keats for me now. <laughs> <laughs> but obviously he said a whole other hair running, you know, set, set me on a opened vistas, like, literally like a window opening. Well, you did once tell me that your father cycled to Paris and, and brought back banned books to Ireland. Did your parents encourage your desire to write? Well, my, I'm the last of 
five children. And um, so they had run out of proper things for people to do by the time they got to me. <laughs> so they had a kind of, there was a kind of luxury, you know, and there was that thing that uh, families do of, oh, yes, so-and-so is good at maths and so-and-so is good at science and so-and-so is good at, at history. And Anne's good at, uh, you know, and oh, 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 we don't, well, well, she's certainly good at something, but we're not, we don't quite know how, to, uh, making trouble was was the conclusion they would draw. Um, so, yes, I, I, I had the luxury of, I had the freedom, I suppose partly because I was a girl that I wasn't expected to make a wage. And my mother uh, uh, is professing, particularly since the booker, the fact that she always wanted to become a writer. So. <laughs> that she wanted to become a writer? Oh, yeah. And were you aware of that? When I must have growing been. Up I must have been. Yeah, I mean, she read all of Dickens, and when she was a child, she you know ate books, and I ate books too, but I ate the different ones. You know, she liked Wind in the Willows. I liked Alice in Wonderland. She liked nineteenth-century realism. I, I I I absolutely abhorred nineteenth-century realism, but yes, the, the 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 game went on all the way through into my work. I'm sure. There still aren't a lot of women writing literary fiction in Ireland. Why do you think that is? Well, my current theory, (laughs) which may change next week, is that um, Irish women are too nice. There's a a joking phrase now, a lovely Irish girl. I mean, the beauty contest in Ireland is called the Rosa Tralee, and it is for a lovely Irish girl who's educated, competent, willing, cheerful, smiling... All of the things I'm not actually and and never wanted to be and set out not to be. And um, it is, I think, um, difficult for an Irish woman to do something for which she would not be liked. And literary fiction involves a bit of that. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I mean... The literary scene in Ireland is both global and very, very local. um, And people are disliked until they're iconized. You know, it's a very critical culture. That's my my recent theory, is that we're, the Irish women are just too good at being really good, too good at being moral, decent, super competent, multitasking. Um, you know, Irish women are the backbone of every organisation. They don't actually run it, you know. They're, that, they're the backbone. <laughs> we're still at that phase. And in right, the, the gathering is about a family that almost, despite itself, recognizes that it's bound together. Your earlier novel, What Do You Like, is about the absence of family and a, a search for identity and, and belonging. Why were you interested in that? Well, I suppose it, I, I was interested. I'm interested in the in the poetry of biology. That's what I'm interested in. I'm interested in the poetry of the body. I'm interested in the poetry of uh, being biologically connected and disconnected in this case because the twins are separated at birth and and so they kind of, um, and they meet later in their own lives. And um, so they mirror each other in unexpected and very fragmented ways um, uh, before coming together at the end. Because in, in, in what are you like, the mother dies in, in childbirth and, and also of, of cancer. And you've talked about the difficulty for a daughter to establish difference from the mother, separating from her. But usually this happens over time as, as one becomes an adult. But here, why did you want to look at the problem kind of right from the beginning? Um, when you say this, when the, about the mother dying... I didn't actually talk about this at the time, but there were cases of women who were kept on life support machines when they, in, in distant corners of Irish hospitals when they were pregnant uh, in order to, um, to give birth to the child when they were effectively um, dead themselves. Um, these were women who had cancer. This is, um, but it's too strong a story, really. It would topple everything if you started banging on about that. I mean, it did, it, it did happen. These these women did exist. Women who were not treated for their illness because they were pregnant. And Bert, the father, is uh, uh, Bert's is um, is confronted with a dead wife and uh, two babies, and he just isn't going to manage all that. So the nice nun takes away one of the babies to make it that bit easier. Um, so it's of a piece with the kind of things that happened in those days. Yes.
you've described your own mother as grimly comic. How did, huh. how did you see her? My mom? Mm. How do I see her now? Or did you as when you were growing up? Oh, I can't see your mother. It's very difficult to see your mother. <laughs> um, uh, you know, I saw. Yeah, it's very difficult to get a, new, a picture of, of of your of your own parents, um, particularly of your mother. I find, and and it's always a shock to see them out in the street. <laughs> <laughs> oh God, that's what they look like. And uh, what was your relationship with your mother like? Oh, in my relationship with my mother continues to be very strong and continues uh, to be very, we just absolutely disagree on things like, you know, whether black is the right colour for a coat. And, um, uh, you know, we agree about shoes after many years. Um, but, you know, the usual um, things that mothers and daughters disagree about. Well, we, we also disagree about how to conduct your life. We disagree about um, sex before marriage. We disagree about lots and lots of different things. But, you know, time has... I mean, I'm not going to say time has mellowed all of that, but time has, has... The circumstances around our disagreements have changed so much that um, all, we're, all we're left with really is the disagreeing. <laughs> Which we still enjoy. I, I get on very well with my mother. I must um, stress that. Uh, she's coming up to 80 now. And I have, have to, I mean, I have vaguely ambivalent thoughts about winning the booker, but she has none. <laughs> <laughs> she likes all of that very much. Since writing that, that, that novel about twins, What Are You Like? You've become a mother yourself. Other than affecting your sense or your map and relationship with death, but how has having children changed your own sense of what you're like? Um, I'll get back to you on that one. I mean, it takes an—I think it takes an awful long time to realize what what has changed in your life. It's maybe I never will because the children are there with me. Um, it's improved. It's given me great juice and energy for my writing, or did for I mean seven years or something. I wrote four books um, in in and had two children in seven years, and I um, now I want to be and I'm having a bit of a rest. Um, makes you really fat, <laughs> <laughs> sitting there typing and getting pregnant, and sitting there typing and getting. Anyway, so I did that for for seven years, um, I, I, and I was so delighted. Um, it's, I'm very interested in why writers don't have children. A lot of writers don't have children as though they would suck some vital essence of their creativity out of them, um, as though it would be impossible for them to write afterwards, uh, after having children. I, I thought all the things might be possible, but I was so delighted with the whole business that my anxiety about writing was removed. I just had, it was just a job. I mean, a, a very serious job, but it's something that had to stop or still does have to stop at half past two every day. I have become much more compartmentalised and uh, I don't spend long times angsting about my work. Um, I tend to keep things on a back burner and a back burner is where, you know, it, there's always a year in the middle of a book where nothing is going right. And I feel like if you just went away on holidays and came back a year later, you would have sorted it out without thinking about it. Um, so that's effectively what I'm doing with kids. You know, I'm putting my problems away um, I, so they can be solved in some other place. And um, I don't know how it will progress. I mean, it's 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 all all always new. It's always new. It's always a new set of problems. Could you read again from The Gathering? This is where Veronica is reflecting on, on the circumstances of her brother Liam's uh, of suicide. Yep. There are facts about the way that Liam died that I wish I did not know. All the things I've forgotten in my life and I can't forget these small details. I've forgotten my 21st birthday, also my 18th birthday. I've forgotten every New Year's Eve but two. I've forgotten what my dead brother looked like at the age of nine or ten or twelve. But I will never forget the three little facts the nice people in Brighton told me about the body that they pulled from the sea. The first is that Liam was wearing a short fluorescent yellow jacket when he died like the ones railway workers and cyclists wear. The second is that he had stones in his pockets. The third is that he had no underpants on 
under his jeans and no socks in his leather shoes. The tides in Brighton are fast and they range far. He wore the jacket so he'd be seen going into the water and his body would be easily found. Liam, who could not organise a box of matches, was, on this occasion, fully organised. The stones explain themselves. But it is the lack of underpants that makes me cry. Liam was never together, but he was always clean. And though he lived in various pits, they always had running water. He always knew where the nearest laundrette might be found. He used an old-fashioned pink soap with an industrial smell. I've no idea what it was called. I remember standing in the supermarket, sniffing all the bars through the paper, ending up with some odourless stuff which he would not use. He put cold tar shampoo on his hair and Listerine on his gums. He sprinkled antifungal powder everywhere and made demands for wet wipes beside the toilet. He flossed. His antiperspirant would strip paint. Liam took his underpants off because they were not clean. He took his socks off because they were not clean. He probably thought as the cold water flooded his shoes, cleansing thoughts. I know as I write about these three things, the jacket, the stones and my brother's nakedness underneath his clothes, that they require me to deal in facts. It's time to put an end to the shifting stories and the waking dreams. And Enright reading from her novel, The Gathering, Thank you so much. It's great to have a chance to talk to you. No, it's great to talk to you, Eleanor. And Enright in Dublin in 2008. The Gathering is available in paperback from Grove Atlantic. Her newest novel, The Wren, The Wren, is published by McClelland and Stewart. Today's show was produced by Mary Stinson. Katie Swales is also producer. The associate producer is Melissa Gismondi. Technical operations by Will Yar. The senior producer of Writers and Company is Sandra Rabinovich. I'm Eleanor Wachtel. Next week, the Vietnamese-American writer Viet Tan Nguyen, whose first novel, The Sympathizer, won the Pulitzer Prize in 2016. His latest book is an unconventional memoir called A Man of Two Faces. That's next week. I hope you'll join me. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.